Good evening, everyone. I want to also say good evening to the many, many members of our church who are watching online this evening. Uh, I guess tonight was one of those nights where everyone at the same time either wasn't feeling well or um, there were obstacles uh, that that prevented people from from being here. Um, I want to especially say uh, hello to Stephanie, who's watching tonight. Um, Many of you know that she tested positive this week and is in quarantine. Uh, So, Stephanie, we love you. We're praying for you. Um, Get better soon, and hopefully we'll see you here next week. So, we are now in the third installment of this series called Uproot. And in this series, we are talking about secret sin. We're talking about ways that in our own hearts, we hide things from God. And not just specific sins, ways in which we hide unrepentance in our hearts. Ways that we refuse to surrender to God. Ways that, that, we, that we refuse to give ourselves completely over to Him. And the devastating consequences that come from keeping ourselves hidden away. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at different case studies in the Bible about people who kept sin secret and suffered consequences for it. The first week, we looked at the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. We looked at the ways that Achan stole the devoted things that God had said, put those in the Lord's treasury. Do not take those. And he took silver and gold and a cloak and he hid them in his tent. And his sin not only caused consequences for him, but for the entire community. 36 men lost their lives. His family was judged for this. But he had opportunity to repent, and he did not. Then last week, we talked about Ananias and Sapphira from from the New Testament in Acts chapter 5. And and how Ananias and Sapphira committed the same sin that Achan did. They took what was devoted to God and hid it in their tent. And they suffered consequences for it. But they could have repented. And they did not. As we continue in this series, we're going to look at more stories like the story of Judas Iscariot. The story of King Jehu. And the story of King David. So today in scripture, we're going to be all over the book of John. Um, So if you want to go ahead and turn to the book of John, that way you will have fewer pages to rifle through here in a few moments. And uh, we're going to be all over the place in there, chapter 6, 12, 13, and 18 mainly. Um, and we're going to be looking this evening at the story of Judas Iscariot. And, and guys, here's the thing. I want you to know here from the outset um, that today's message may start a little bit dark, uh, but there is such good news at the end. There, there is such good news. There is so much eternal hope in tonight's message that I want you to hear. I want you to walk away from this message with incredible hope. I want you to walk away with this me- uh, from this message with incredible peace about the future. What God offers to you, the love that he offers to every single one of us, regardless of where it is that we stand in the process, the love of God that we're going to see tonight is incredible. And so if you are someone who has not completely surrendered to Jesus, or if you are someone who's holding things back 
from him. Hopefully today's message is for you. And, and, and my hope is to show you how deeply you are loved by God tonight. But let's start with the bad news first, shall we? Um, in 2015, the UK publication The Guardian published a story about a woman named Lisa Jones. More specifically, it was a story about her relationship with a man named Mark Stone. Lisa and Mark Stone met in the fall of 2003. They met on an environmental campaign, uh, campaigning for um, increased environmental rights. So she's a dedicated activist in the UK. She is a, a, a protester um, fighting for things like anti-capitalism, anti-nuclear pursuits, uh, environmental pursuits, etc. And so she meets Mark Stone at one of these protests. And her first impression of Mark is that he is very charming. He is familiar in a way that she says is disarming. And so before long, Mark integrates himself very nicely into Lisa's group of friends. They would all go rock climbing together in their spare time, hang out at coffee shops, um, and aided uh, together in planning their activism. And so the two began to date. And this dating relationship would be a six-year relationship. So together for a very long time. In that uh, six years, they experienced, you know, the typical highs and lows of a a relationship. For example, when, when Lisa's father died... Mark was there with her in the limo on the way to the burial site. He was the one that she said lifted her up in her time of need. He was her rock of comfort. Over the years, one of the things they loved to do was travel. They traveled all over Europe, their favorite place being Italy. They they enjoyed backpacking, cycling, rock climbing, being outdoors. And they're passionate about all the same things, right? So this seems like a match made in heaven. And then Mark abruptly disappeared. In the weeks leading up to the disappearance, she noticed that he was agitated, he was distant, he was very emotional, and and she had no idea what was going on and no idea why he was acting this way. She was especially alarmed when she noticed that he had sold his car, that he apparently had quit his job, and that he was selling things in his house. And she made the comment to him, It seems like you're leaving and never coming back. And he assured her that that was not the case. But then he disappeared. And for three months, he was nowhere to be found. He had given her some cryptic message about spending some time in the United States uh, with his brother. That he was being followed by the police. All this different stuff. and, And she thought that he had lost his mind. Three months later, upon his return, he told her that his activism had gotten uh, him in trouble. That police had raided his place, that he had to go somewhere to be safe. He was sorry for disappearing, but he assured her that everything was fine. And she wanted so badly for that story to be true, so she resumed her relationship with him. But she knew that something didn't quite add up. 
So for six months after that, six months goes by, and during that six months, she wavers between two extremes, feeling like their relationship is better than ever and feeling like I'm more confused than I've ever been. Something doesn't add up here. And it's at that point that she made a startling discovery. The two had gone on a trip to the mountains of Italy, And Mark had gone off on a bike ride, and so Lisa was waiting in their van for him to return. And so she began to rifle through some of his things, looking for a pair of sunglasses. Instead, she found something else, his passport. And on his passport, a different name, Mark Kennedy, rather than Mark Stone. And then she found a phone that she hadn't seen him use before. She opened his phone and she found emails from two children calling him dad. And she began to describe how at that moment, it's like all of the mountains started swimming around her. Everything was wild. So for two days, she says, she agonized over what to do. She didn't know whether to approach him. He could tell that there's something wrong, but she didn't want to say anything yet. And she agonized over this. She said she didn't sleep at all. But then finally, she decided to confront him. And she said, I need to know about your son. Realized that the gig was up. He collapsed into tears and he told her the truth. The truth that he used to be a drug runner and that his partner in this drug business was shot in front of him. And he promised his partner that he would look after the guy's two kids. And so he had been doing that and now these two kids had, be- become, uh, c- had come to a place where he was like their father. Lisa said this in her interview with The Guardian. I was desperate for an explanation that sounded plausible. Fantastical as it now sounds in the retelling, one of the reasons it seemed plausible was the amount of emotion that he poured out of him when he told me this. It seemed as if he had finally opened up. I held him as he cried for about eight hours through the night. We sat up and we talked. He cried and I cried. It felt like we had really shared something. So I didn't really analyze the facts at that point particularly strongly. Hopefully you're getting the sense that all is not as it should be. But they continued dating after this. Try as she might, Lisa still could not shake the feeling that something was off. Something was still missing. There was still a piece of the puzzle that she hadn't figured out yet. But she pushed herself into believing him because she loved him and she wanted their relationship to continue. They took another trip to Italy about six months later. And when they got back from the trip, she said she was feeling like she was on top of the world. Everything was going wonderfully. And then a friend of hers came over. And this friend was a hobbyist doing ancestry research online and showing her all the different ways that she could find, you know, the ancestry for different people. And out of curiosity, Lisa blurted out, look up Mark Stone's birth certificate. So her friend typed in Mark Stone and they couldn't find anything. There was no record of Mark Stone. It was as if he did not even exist. Over the next couple of weeks, she and her friend began to dig deeper. They 
switched their search from Mark Stone to Mark Kennedy, searching under his name, and in doing so, they found his son's birth certificate. And on the birth certificate, they found a startling detail about Mark, that he was listed as a police officer. So she and her friends confronted him together. And at this point, he finally revealed the actual true story. And that is that Mark Kennedy, a.k.a. Mark Stone, was an undercover police officer whose job was to infiltrate the inner circle of political activists, which Lisa was, and report everything about these political activists back to the department. And Lisa, being one of the more influential activists in the area, had been a perfect target. And so Mark had posed as a normal guy to date her, to worm his way into the inner circle, and report everything back to his superiors. She later came to find out that she was not the only one. She and others began to really turn up the heat on investigating this and and figuring out what the deal was and and putting pressure on the police department to come forward with a real answer. And Lisa's investigation eventually revealed to the public a government secret that had been kept silent since 1968. This program started in 1968 involving over 100 undercover officers who disguised themselves as fake campaigners and activists. And these officers would infiltrate groups, they would help plan protests, and then report all of the details back to the department. More than 10 women came forward after Lisa, uh, discovering that they too had been in intimate relationships with undercover cops. As it turned out, Mark was dating four of them all at once. Another officer, Bob Lambert, had undercover dated three additional women himself and even had a son with one of them before he completely disappeared. And she never knew what the truth was for 20 years until all of this came out. Uh, Not surprisingly, there was a civil lawsuit. (laughs) Uh, They sued the department, and they received substantial settlements and an apology. All is solved, right? No amount of money, no amount of apologies could fill this void that was created. And, And the questions that arose... Lisa said the question that kept her up at night the most is whether Mark actually ever loved her. After all, they were together for six years. He was a part of the most intimate moments of her life for a long time. She said, it's an endless, endless question that I will always be wondering. Did he actually care? Can you even imagine something like that? Can you imagine being with someone for years, having no idea who they truly were, only for their true identity to be revealed in some kind of sinister way. 
battling with the questions afterwards. Who would do this? Why would someone do this to me? How could someone pretend to love me and yet have ulterior motives the entire time? How did I not see something sooner? How did I not notice? How did I not know? I can't imagine. I can't imagine trying to pick up the pieces after something like that or ever trusting anyone ever again. What we're going to see in the scriptures today is a similar undercover relationship. They lasted for three years. One in which a man, pretending to be something that he was not, infiltrated the inner circle of a movement, posed as one of them, served alongside them, pretended to be someone that he actually wasn't. And in a sinister move of betrayal, finally revealed who he truly was by betraying and selling out the Messiah to political authorities. But this story has at least one major difference from the story of Lisa's relationship with Mark. In that story, she was completely unaware of who he was or what he was doing. She could not see his heart. Jesus was not that way. And that difference we're going to see carries all of the hope in the world for us. So um, I did say that we're going to be in John, but briefly we're going to start in Luke and then go to John. So uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be behind me on the screen. This is a section that is talking about uh, the calling of the disciples. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples. And he chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter. Andrew, his brother. And James and John. And Philip and Bartholomew. And Matthew and Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Today, we are going to talk about the story of Judas Iscariot. We all know Judas Iscariot. He's one of the most famous names in all of the Bible. We know him as the man who betrayed Jesus. But I want us to rewind backwards from the moment that we all know him for, the moment of betrayal. And we're going to look at a couple of pieces of his life leading up to that betrayal. Because I think contained in the stories that we have about Judas are some essential truths for us today. And and hopefully what we're going to see in the story of Judas is actually a story of hope. Judas didn't end his story with hope. At all. But it certainly can end in hope for us. So we're going to sketch out briefly who Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, who Judas was, and then we'll get to uh, what some of those lessons are. So what we see here in, in, in Luke chapter 6 is that Jesus chose the 12 apostles out of a larger group of disciples. 
And there are other places in the Gospels that refer to people as disciples. Um, People like Mary and Martha and Lazarus are referred to as as disciples of Jesus. We know that there's a group of at least 70. There's a large group of people called disciples. And out of that group, 12 are chosen to be his inner circle. It says here um, that he called his disciples and chose from them 12. So there's a group, he brings the group in, he handpicks 12, 12 guys who are going to be in the inner circle. And among them is Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Um, the name Judas Names are very significant in the Bible. Names aren't just something that uh, parents gave to their kids because they liked the sound of it, right? Back then, a name was given as an intentional push in a particular direction. This name was intended to be given to a child to display what their life was supposed to be about. It, It was the parents giving a direction to their child by giving them a name. It was a prophetic word over their life. And Judas, his name, uh, coming from the tribe of Judah, his name means Jehovah leads. Jehovah leads. So this is a guy, we have to understand, that this is a guy who was raised in church, so to speak. Obviously, he has parents who desire for him that his life is going to be led by God. His parents speak this prophetic word over him and giving him this name to say, your life will be led by our Lord. We speak this over you. This also leads us then to believe that they intended to raise him for that name. They intended to raise him in such a way that God would lead his life. And as we all know, that did not happen. So he is raised with this prophetic word over him that that God will lead his life. He is raised in church, so to speak, raised by parents who want this for him. He's in a a large group and then he's handpicked by Jesus to be one of his the 12 apostles. Now, let's turn to the book of John. John chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 60 through 70. Leading up to this passage, earlier in John chapter 6, Jesus is giving to his large group of disciples some very difficult teaching. He's teaching them things that are, are pretty hard to swallow. They're they're realizing as he's teaching what is going to be required of them in order to follow him. So picking up in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So in other words, Jesus teaches this hard thing. And and a lot of the group that was there was like, "Ooh, I don't know about all that. I've seen Jesus do some pretty crazy things. I don't know if I want to continue to follow. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then this note is given by John. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. A bunch of them left. A bunch of them decided this isn't worth it. A bunch of them decided, we thought that this is what we wanted to do, but never mind. We're leaving. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to leave as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Simon Peter says, where where are we going to go, Lord? You are God. You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we supposed to go now? And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? He's looking at the twelve guys. I chose you, the twelve. And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And we're going to come back to a lot of the things in this passage because there's so much here. But the first observation that we have from this is that even when so many of the other disciples left, even after Jesus taught this difficult thing saying, this is what's going to be required of you to follow after me, the 12 stayed. The 12 decided we have nowhere else to go. And that included Judas. Judas didn't leave when all the others did. Judas stayed. But that doesn't mean that he stayed for the right reasons. And even in that moment, Jesus saw right through him. Jesus saw that Judas was not staying out of true faith. He was staying because he wanted what Jesus could get for him. So, We're going to turn to another passage. I promise you we're going to come back to this one. So uh, mark it in your Bible. Uh, Now let's go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Okay, so we're putting more of these pieces together about the life of Judas. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. And there's Bethany in the back. Hi, Bethany. Uh, Where Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. What a conversation that must have been as they're sitting at the table. Lazarus being like, hey guys, you remember when I was dead and now I'm not? Eat up. Have some bread. That's how I imagine it anyway. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, John keeps giving these notes. Now it's interesting, we're going to see later on. It's not till later that the disciples know what's going on. So it's later as John is writing this down that he's relaying these things that he's saying, none of us had any idea at the time. Judas said in verse 5, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 denarii, by the way, is a year's wages for a laborer, okay? So whatever your salary is for one year, that's some expensive perfume, all right? 
I have no idea how a perfume could cost that much, uh, but it did, okay? This is some real Coco Chanel stuff. And she spills it all over Jesus to worship him. And Judas says, why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor? And at the time, the other apostles are probably like, wow, Judas, great question. Why was this wasted? We could have served so many people with it. But John, relaying this later on, in verse 6, it says he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. So Judas, acting like he's caring about the poor, says, man, we should have put a bunch of money in the bag. Because he's holding the bag. And he's taking out of it for himself. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you. But you do not always have me. So that, that note that's included there in verse 6 tells us that Judas was always a thief, okay? This verse tells us that it was his practice, a habit. This wasn't a one-time thing. It says, uh, having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. This is what he does. This is his style, okay? He always has been a thief from the very beginning. We saw in the first passage that from the very beginning, his heart was not right. From the very start, when Jesus called him, he was pretending to be something that he was not. And the other disciples didn't see it at the time. But Jesus did. Now, another fun little nugget here is that as we're going through this series, we're seeing the same thing over and over and over. Okay? Judas does the same thing that Achan did. Judas does the same thing that Ananias and Sapphira did. What Judas does is he steals devoted things. uh, Judas is holding money that is supposed to be for Jesus' ministry to serve the poor. This is silver and gold devoted to God in his treasury. And Judas hides it in his tent. Judas puts his hand in the bag and he takes what belongs to God, and he keeps it for himself, and he hides it so that no one else around him sees it. Achan did that. Ananias did that. Sapphira did that. Now Judas does that. And what happens next? Next in the story, Judas ups the ante. Judas takes to its eventual logical conclusion what he has been doing all along. After this scolding, Judas goes to the chief priest. Judas goes to the the chief priest and he negotiates a price with them for him to betray Jesus. What will you pay me to hand over Jesus to you? This is after three years of being in the inner circle of Jesus. This is after being with him every single day. After watching him do miracle after miracle, after one life changed after another. And and the price that Judas receives for Jesus is 30 pieces of silver, which at the time was the price that you would pay for the, the lowest slave on the totem pole. 
Okay, so this is the price that you would pay for someone that you regard as being less valuable than cattle. This is the price that he gets. We ask the question, why, why, would, why would Judas go undercover like that? What, what did he hope to gain? Judas likely aligned himself with Jesus because of Jesus' power. Because of the miracles that Jesus performed. Because the hope was Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman Empire. The other disciples believed this too. Jesus continually had to correct in them this mindset that the Messiah is going to be a political overthrower. So Judas aligns himself with Jesus likely because he wants to be a prince of the rebellion. He wants to be one of the guys who's on a horse next to Jesus as Jesus beats the Romans and Judas gets to be even more rich because now he's on the victor's side in the battle. But then when it became increasingly clear that Jesus was never going to do that, Judas gives up the gig and he turns him in. So this entire time, Judas has been using Jesus for his own purposes. So that's kind of a a sketch, a broad sketch of the life of Judas. Now let's go back through the story a little bit, look at some of those passages again, and, and look at a few key details that are here. And from these key details, I want us to begin to make the connection to ourselves and what this tragic story gives us for hope. So let's go back to John chapter 6. And here in John chapter 6, here's the first thing that I want you to see. Okay, if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Jesus always saw Judas. And Jesus always sees you. Jesus always saw Judas. And Jesus always sees you. Here in John chapter 6, we see this verse that says, in verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. From the beginning... From the very start, we, we, we read in Luke chapter 6 that Jesus gathers all this group of disciples together and he handpicks 12 of them. From the very start, Jesus knows. You fake. He knows. You fake. You're still coming. Now Judas doesn't know that Jesus knows. Judas has no idea. Judas thinks, I'm safe in the shadows. He has no idea that Jesus has already seen his heart. That should blow our minds. That that, that fact alone should cause us to be so mind blown. That from the very start, it was no mystery to Jesus. It, it, It was no surprise Lisa Jones started dating Mark Stone because she thought that he was Mark Stone. 
It wasn't until six years later that she found out he's actually Mark Kennedy, an undercover cop who's going undercover to investigate all of my activism. So he's just pretending that he wants to be with me. And so she's shocked by it at the end. Jesus is not shocked by this. From the very start, he knows who doesn't believe and he knows who is going to betray him. Jesus always knows people's hearts. But here's the thing. Knowing that, knowing exactly who Judas Iscariot was, knowing exactly what he believed, knowing exactly what he was going to do, knowing exactly what his motives were in wanting to use Jesus for his own personal gain, knowing all that, Jesus still picked him. And not only did Jesus still pick him, Jesus still treated him like family. Judas walked in the inner circle with Jesus for three years. They ate every meal together. They slept in the same house together, wherever they were, or under the stars together. These are Jesus' boys, okay? This is the inner circle. Jesus is gang with Judas for three years, knowing what he knows. Still loves him in the inner circle. Still treats Judas the same way that he treats everyone else. With the same love, the same respect, the same honor. Does that not humble you? Does that, does that not humble you? Does that, does that not bring you to a place of saying, wow, what a guy. Okay, if you told Lisa Jones who Mark Stone actually was, you think she would have dated him? No, none of us would. Okay, it would be stupid to. I know exactly what you're trying to do to me. No, get thee behind me, Satan. Absolutely not. But Jesus, knowing what Judas was going to do, still said, come on in. Now, like we talked about before, the other disciples are fooled by Judas. They, They have no idea. Talking about this later on in Acts chapter 1, Peter, in, in, the, in the passage where the, where the new disciple is being picked, okay, the replacement for Judas, Peter talks about Judas, and, and, and what Peter says there in Acts chapter 1 is, he was one of us. He was one of us. They are shocked by this. When you look at at the passages where, especially Jesus in the upper room, which we're going to see a little bit later on, Jesus actually blatantly says, one of the people at this table is going to betray me. One of you guys is going to turn me in. And even then, they're looking at each other like, there's no way that can happen. No way. It's not going to happen. Even when Judas leaves, the other disciples believed that he was going to, to do something for the poor. Oh, surely he's just going to buy bread or something. Jesus has just said, there's a betrayer. And they're like, well, I know it's not me. Is it you? It's not you? I don't know what he's talking about then. Judas has everyone fooled. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. 
So here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to see. I'm not, I don't want you to get the wrong idea here, okay? I am not trying to paint all of us as the ultimate betrayer, okay? Judas is the biggest criminal in all of history, right? He's regarded by theologians as being the greatest betrayer in all time, right? He turns in God. uh, And Jesus says, woe will be to him, okay? So I'm not trying to look at everyone out here and say, you Judases. But there's something I want you to understand. Jesus saw Judas. Jesus also sees you. You may come into church or into a Bible study or, or, or into a, a Christian circle of any type. And you may be able to live in such a way that everyone is fooled. Everyone thinks you're good. Maybe even you are fooled into thinking, I'm good. I'm doing the thing. I'm, I'm reading the stuff. I'm praying the things. I'm singing the, the songs. But Jesus sees you. Jesus sees your heart. If there are things that you are holding back from him, if there are things that you refuse to surrender to him, if you are a person who has never truly given your life to Jesus, Jesus sees. And he knows. And even if your heart is far from him, this is so beautiful, guys, even if your heart is far from him, even if your motives are entirely impure, Jesus still invites you. Jesus still invites you in. Knowing what he knows, he still invites you in. Point number two. Sin always turns us into consumers and Jesus still gives us all of himself. Sin always turns us into consumers. Yet Jesus still gives us all of himself. Let's go back again to chapter 12. This scene where it says that Judas is stealing. And again, verse 6 tells us that he always was a thief, right? It is always his practice to steal from the bag. What's crazy about that is that Jesus never stopped him, right? If Jesus knew the whole time, okay, if if Jesus saw from the very beginning, Jesus was the one who said to Judas, here, you hold the bag. You're in charge of the money. Now, you remember we talked about Achan, And how silly it is to think that you can hide something in a tent from God, right? That Achan stole this stuff that he wasn't supposed to steal, and then he put it in his tent, and he put some stuff on it, and his attitude was, God's never going to see this here, right? We talked about how dumb that is. Judas does the very same thing, okay? He's holding the money bag, and he is literally spending every day with God, All right? God is his roommate. Literally, okay? Every day, 
here's Judas, here's God. And Judas has the money bag, and he's taken out of it. When he thinks no one is looking, but Jesus knew. He always knew. So why didn't Jesus stop him? Why? I think part of it is so that Judas would never be able to say, Jesus gave up on me. He would never be able to say that. At the end of his life, Judas ends it because of regret and guilt. But just like Achan, just like Ananias, just like Sapphira, Judas could have repented him, uh, repented, and Jesus would have forgiven him. If Judas would have come to Jesus and said, I've been stealing from the money bag, Jesus' response would not have been, what? I had no idea. Jesus' response would have been, I forgive you, Judas. I've been waiting for you to come to me. I've been waiting with open arms. I've been waiting for you to repent. I've been waiting to forgive you. Judas could have repented, and Jesus would have forgiven him. Let me remind us again what Judas' name means. Jehovah leads. Raised in church. His parents hoping that Jehovah would lead his life. But instead of being led by Jehovah, Judas ends up leading soldiers to Jehovah to arrest him. It is the opposite of the prophecy that was spoken over him by his parents. Instead of being led by God, he is led by gain. Instead of being led by God, he is led by gain. Here's the thing, you guys, you need to understand. It is possible to spend your whole life in church, to spend your whole life, your your time with the people of God, doing ministry, doing the work of the saints, being a witness to miracles in countless people's lives, and yet never be submitted to or surrendered to God. It is possible to be next to God and yet not be led by God. It is possible to be in the presence of God, but not be following after God. For God to be present, but not in charge. Remember how Judas was one of the disciples who stayed in chapter 6 when all the others left. That, that when they saw the teaching of Jesus was too hard, they stayed When what Jesus said was too demanding, the 12, including Judas, said, where else are we going to go? Including Judas. And Jesus sees right through him. Knows that he's not staying for the right reasons. Here's what we need to understand about ourselves. There are plenty of people who don't really want to submit to Jesus for the right reasons. They don't really want to surrender control of their life to him. They don't really want him to be master. They don't really have a genuine affection for him. They they don't really love him as their best friend. 
They don't really desire to spend eternity in perfect fellowship with him. What they want is what he can give them. For Judas, that was money, power, position. Again, the the hope of being on the right side in the battle. He he was expecting that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans and and that he was going to be a prince of the rebellion. That's what he was hoping to gain from Jesus. For us, maybe it's the blessings of God. Maybe the church makes us feel good. Maybe the, the community is a place where we are taken care of and we have our needs met, where we feel loved. Maybe it's a, a get-out-of-hell-free card. The hope of eternal reward. And, and, and those aren't necessarily bad things, right? It's good to want the, the life that comes with this community. It's good to enjoy the blessings of fellowship in church. But those things are not the same as wanting him for him. His blessings, his body, his offer of eternity, all of those are wonderful. But it's not the same as wanting Jesus for Jesus. That's wanting Jesus for the money. That's being a spiritual gold digger. No one likes gold diggers, right? The term gold digger is an insult. We speak it over someone who we know does not care about the person they're with. They just want them for their money. And they will say out loud, no, we're so in love. We are meant to be together. We're soulmates. We know what's going on. Okay, he's 86 and you're 22. And he's a billionaire. Not hard to figure out, right? So we speak this word, gold digger. And we look down our nose and we're like, oh man, she a gold digger. But we don't realize how guilty we are of doing the same thing with God. That we come to him not for true desire of relationship and connection. We come to him so often just for what he can give us. We come to him so often just because we want his blessings. Just because we want the things that we can gain from him. In that case, we are not led by God. We are led by gain. And so here, perhaps, we're not necessarily talking about some secret sin that you need to uproot from your life. Perhaps what we're talking about here is an unrepentant heart that has never truly surrendered to God because what you want is what he can give you, not himself. And I want you to take a moment and consider, is that me? Have I been coming to God Not for God, but for what I can get from God. And look what happens in chapter 18. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. This is after the supper, after Jesus and his other disciples are in the garden. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden where he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers with the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Other passages tell us that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. A kiss. A a sign of submission and respect. A, a, A sign that you were affectionate with someone. You were close. And that is what he uses to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that he was going to do that. When Judas came to a point where he realized, this guy isn't going to get me what I want. This God is not going to give me the game that I was looking for. Judas goes so far as to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. And there are so many times where someone makes the same decision with Jesus today. We get to a point, no matter how how long we've been in church, we get to a point where we realize this Jesus is not going to give me what I want. This Jesus is not going to give me a happy, comfortable American life. This Jesus is not going to answer every prayer with a yes. This Jesus is not going to make me rich. This Jesus is not going to be a genie who I can just pray to and receive and receive and receive. So you know what? I give up on Jesus. I don't want him anymore. Y'all can have him. I'll take a McDouble instead. How many times have we seen someone walk away from the church altogether because they didn't get from Jesus what they thought he was going to give them? That is what Judas does. And yet, and yet, this is what we've all been leading up to. Okay, the, let's, let's bring this now to the pinnacle. Point number three. Even to those who refuse to submit, Jesus humbly loves. Even to those who refuse to submit, Jesus humbly loves. Okay, so we've, we've got this picture of Judas, Right? This, this guy who from the very beginning was just using Jesus. This guy from, from the very beginning was hiding this heart filled with evil. This guy who, who regarded Jesus as being so worthless that he would sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. This guy who when he realized that Jesus wasn't going to give him what he wanted, cast him aside and betrayed him with a kiss. This was worse than a stab in the back. This was a shot in the face. And yet, I want to show you what happens before Judas does that. Directly before. Directly before the moment of betrayal. This is what happens. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. Here, we're at the Passover. Okay? Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And this is one of the most humbling passages in the entire Bible. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart 
out of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Um, In other translations where it says, he loved them to the end. In the NIV, for example, it says, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Okay, and we, we often think the full extent is the cross. And, and in many senses, that's true. But what we're about to see here is the full extent of Jesus' love. Humbling himself in a way that we cannot wrap our minds around. He showed them the full extent of his love. Verse 2, during supper... When the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, okay? The decision has already been made. It's gonna happen. He has already decided, I'm selling him out. I'm done. I've reached my limit. This Jesus isn't gonna give me what I want. I already know what I'm gonna do. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he came from God and was going back to God. Rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. And began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing to you, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. And put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? We do not have get dirty. All right. And so what would happen is when you would go into a house your feet would be washed by a slave. But not any slave, okay? Because even in the slaves, there were a hierarchy, all right? Even among the servants, there were certain things that a servant wouldn't do. If you were the lowest servant, okay? You were the servant that even the other servants were like, whew, that guy, stay away from him. That's the foot washer, It was the most dishonorable job in all of antiquity, okay? There was no more dishonoring job than to wash feet. That is why Peter is blown away. That's why Peter looks at him and is shocked. He's like, Jesus, are you going to wash my feet? How is this happening? Peter recognized here the magnitude of what was going on. Here we have God. 
God of the universe. We have the same God who with his words spoke everything into existence. Every star in the sky, every grass in the field, every animal, every person was spoken into existence by this God. This is the God of the universe who stands higher than all. The God of the universe who will reign for all of eternity. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the majesty of majesties. And this God gets on his knees and he puts a towel around his waist and he takes the dirty stinking feet of his disciples and he washes them and Peter is like how how could you do this for me I don't deserve this. What's going on? This is why John says, knowing the hour had come, Jesus showed them the full extent of his love by washing their feet. And here's what should blow us away even more. What should blow us away even more Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. That alone is unspeakable. But what should blow us away even more is that Jesus didn't wash just Peter's feet. Jesus didn't wash just the feet of the disciples who would be faithful to him. Jesus, knowing who Judas was, And what he was about to do, he knows that Judas is about to walk out the door and sell him out for a McDouble. And he gets on his knees and he takes Judas' dirty, stinking feet connected to his dirty, stinking heart. And he washes his feet. I don't have words for that. I don't have a category for that kind of love. For that kind of humility. That Jesus would wash the feet of Judas. Here's what you need to understand, my friends. You who are here, you who are online, you who are on the podcast. This is how Jesus loves you. This is how the God of the universe loves you. (laughs) That no matter what you have done, no matter what you will do, no matter how deep the darkness goes in your soul, no matter how many times you have sold him out in the past or will sell him out in the future, no matter what your sins are, no matter how you have wronged him, no matter how you have insulted him, no matter how many times you have taken this and disobeyed it, irregardless of what you have done, the offer of Jesus' love is... I will wash your feet. I will show you the full extent of my love. That is the kind of God that you would be a fool to not surrender to.
That is the kind of God that you would be out of your mind not to give yourself to completely. That is the kind of God, in in the face of that kind of love, who could say, no thanks? Well, Judas could. (laughs) Judas did. We find later on that what happens is after he has betrayed Jesus, he realizes what he's done. And he is so racked with guilt that he goes and he commits suicide. He ends his life. What's crazy to me is that after he's realized what he's done, he doesn't go running back to Jesus. He runs out into a field to end his own life. I ask the question, what would have happened if after the betrayal, Judas came back to Jesus would he have been forgiven? Is there precedent for that? Is there precedent for someone betraying Jesus and then being forgiven? As a matter of fact, there is. Simon Peter, the guy who argued with Jesus about having his feet washed in this very moment. Because this guy also betrays Jesus. This guy also denies Jesus. Simon Peter said to him in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Simon Peter talks a big game. And then in chapter 18, we read that Simon Peter denies Jesus, just like Jesus foretold. Not once, not twice, but three times. Three times, Peter says, I don't even know the guy. Three times, Peter says, how dare you even ask me? I have never met him. I have no connection to him whatsoever. Three times, Peter, in the face of people, because he's afraid for his own life, says, "Uh, yeah, I betrayed Jesus. Y'all can have him. I got nothing to do with this. Peter does that very same thing. And so we turn to John 21. I don't have this on the screen, but in the end of John, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appearing to his disciples. And uh, understandably, Peter feels about this big. He's betrayed the Christ. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you, but I failed you. You know that I loved you, but I betrayed you. You know that I loved you, but I dropped the ball. You know that I love you, but I can't, I can't stand up to the standard that you've gotten. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I said to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify, to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. You know what the first words he said to Peter were? Follow me. After the denial, after the betrayal, Jesus, with all the love in his heart, looked at Peter and said, follow me and take care of my sheep. I not only call you, I not only forgive you, I also call you. I'm not only giving you salvation, I'm giving you a mission. I'm not only giving you forgiveness, I'm also giving you purpose. I'm giving you a new life to live for eternity and a new mission to carry out for that eternity. Judas could have had the same thing, but he didn't. Instead, he just continued to run. And because he ran, his life ended as a son of perdition, and that was it. You now have a choice. After the betrayals, after the failures, after the ways that we've let him down, after the denials, after the darkness in our hearts have been displayed, after all that, Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Follow me. Follow me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word.